0: Felt like it. Two, two weeks. Next week is Thanksgiving week. We meet Monday, Wednesday. We won't be here a week from today, so no lab next week. Yay. We don't come next Friday. No. Oh, no. No. The college is closed from from Thursday, my, uh, but we are reopen on. We are here on Monday, though. No, my Spanish teacher said we have lab Friday. Next week? No. Nope. But we do have. We do have an assignment due today. Homework number seven is due today, so submit that either after class today or on the or on the uh, Dropbox on D2L uh, before 6 o'clock tomorrow. Exam 4 will be on Monday. Um, What I'm hoping to do is to finish up chapter 16 today which is not on the exam. The exam only goes through chapter 15. 16 will come up on the final. And then on Wednesday of next week, Hopefully I've got a good number here. I'm going to start chapter 17, which is a longer one. That'll take us at least two and a half classes, to th- two and a half to three classes to get through. And then the last, whatever we have left, the last class and a half or so, class to class and a half, we'll do the final chapter on life in the universe. But I can cover most of that in, w- in one class. So exam will be Monday. Uh, there is a quiz that is up and available that will be also due on Monday that will cover chapters 15 and 16. If you're going to do the course evaluation, extra credit, remember we're not doing one in class here. It is online for this class. That is five points. Just email me that you've done it. The evaluation closes at midnight on the 30th. So send me the email before that time. Don't, send, don't come in on the first and tell me I completed it. I, need, I want the email before it's, before it's actually closed that you've completed it. So just send me an email that you've completed that. If you've already done so, you should already see the five points on your... On your grades, I've already added in for everybody as of you know, like 8 o'clock this morning. Anybody who would emailed me by that time should already see that extra credit on there. I can't check and tell who's graded. I'll never be able to know who's done them. I can only see the numbers as to, who, as to who's, how many students have completed them. So I, can't tell, I won't be able to know that you did it to give you the credit unless you email me. You've got to email me and tell me that, yes, I completed it. Otherwise, I might see that 20 students completed it. But if only 10 of them email me, they're the ones who are going to get the credit. Then, uh, otherwise, we have the solar project. That is due right after we come back from Thanksgiving on the 1st of December, as well as the exam replacement, the other uh, extra credit assignment that will replace one of your exam scores. Again, if you want to do that. If you don't, it won't hurt you. Uh, those are both due on the 1st of December when we, when we come back after Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break. Any questions? Anything else up here? For lab today, I do have a, a lab to do as well. If you want time to work on your solar observations, the lab that we're doing, it's a computer lab, but it doesn't involve starry night. So if you want to work on your solar project while I'm here, you're welcome to do that. If you want to do the lab, you're welcome to do that. You can do either one of them. You can take the lab with you and finish that and bring it back you know, next week. So but it does require a website to use but it doesn't require anything specific to the computers here. So I'll leave that up to you if, you, if you're having concerns with the calculations or graphs and you want to work on those while well, I'm here to help I'll be more than happy to let you do that for the lab section as well. Otherwise, if nothing else there, our picture of the day for today. This is uh, M1, Messier object number one. And I've mentioned some of the Messier objects before. Charles Messier cataloged all the fuzzy objects in the sky that he could find through a small telescope. And there were a little over a hundred of them that he he identified. This is actually the first one he identified. And this is what we call the Crab Nebula. And this is a supernova remnant. So this is what's left over when a star explodes and tears itself apart. Now this was a type two supernova. So if you recall, back from what was it? Chapter 14 or so? That we looked at, the, we looked at supernovae. A, super, a type 2 supernova is a massive star that reaches the end of its life. So it builds up iron in its core, becomes unstable, and rips itself apart expelling all those outer layers out into space in the massive explosion. And right at the center here I believe if I'm identifying correctly, because they don't identify it for me here, but that would be the pulsar at the center. There actually is a pulsar at the center, a neutron star, the compact remnant of that star that is left over there. And we do see this pulse, so we do get beams of light for it. We actually happen to be in the path of those, of those beams. Um, this is also where all of the elements come from. So everything that we're made up of. Right? was part of a supernova, not this one, but of supernovae that occurred a long time ago. The Big Bang, as we'll talk about in chapter 17 coming up, created hydrogen and helium only. So that's all that came out of the Big Bang was hydrogen and helium. So if it were not for stars exploding like this, you know, we wouldn't be here. We need things like oxygen, carbon, iron, um, heavier elements, you know, things like copper, and that make up our bodies, everything there it came from a supernova explosion. It was either produced in the star before that and then expelled out, or was actually, for most of the heavier elements, things like gold and platinum and uranium, was actually created in the explosion itself. While the supernova is going off with that intense energy release, could actually fuse even heavier elements. So that's where most of the things that we see here, you know, except for hydrogen and helium here on Earth, that's where almost everything came from. This supernova occurred uh, almost 1,000 years ago now. This was actually visible on Earth in 1054, so coming up on the 1,000 year anniversary of this in a, another couple of decades, but almost 1,000 years ago. So you're seeing this, how far that star has expanded, how much that material has moved in 1,000 years. And considering how far away this is, you know, we're now talking things that are you know, light years across. So that's had that much time to be able to expand great distances. You can actually measure this. Astronomers can actually measure the rate of expansion. You can pick out different pieces of this nebula, look at certain filaments and knots in it, and can measure how much did they expand? What did the picture look like 20 years ago, 30 years ago? And you can actually measure that rate of expansion to figure out w- when the supernova occurred. So. Nice picture of a supernova remnant there, what's left over when a real massive, real big massive star, much much bigger than the Sun, explodes. Questions? Otherwise we'll see what we can do on chapter 16 here and get that finished up. We were right here last time as I recall. We were looking at galactic cannibalism, galactic mergers, galaxies combining together. To form larger galaxies. And we think that is the process by which the galaxies that we see today, spiral galaxies like our own, large elliptical galaxies form. Now what we're seeing here is two images. We're seeing in the red what we call a more typical image. We're just looking at the galaxy itself. If we look just into the center, So we have a little inset image here where we're trying to look through all of that and look at just the center. We see not one single core to the galaxy but actually three of them. A real large one which was probably the original galaxy core and two smaller ones that are parts of likely parts of other galaxies that have now combined with this galaxy. If we come back over time, tens of millions, a hundred million years, these will slowly combine, eventually combine together and we'll just have one single core there. So, we're sketching it in an early stage, shortly after the collisions have occurred. And we can still see the separate cores. Over time, they will eventually, this will absorb the other two. You'll get an even more massive black hole at the center, possibly giving off even more energy, becoming more active. But again, we're seeing little bits of evidence that galaxies do collide together and that probably the big galaxies form from smaller galaxies. Now I mentioned early on we did not understand how spiral galaxies formed. I talked about the density waves in terms of a way that you could actually form a galaxy. Not form a spiral structure, but keep the spiral structure there once it did form. Well this is an example of a simulation where we've collided two galaxies together. So again, do this on the computer. We can do it much faster. We can run time forward. You know, hundreds of millions of years can take only, you know, minutes or seconds depending on you know, how many particles, how many calculations you have to do. But this is an example of if you hit things just right, if you have a galaxy here and this red galaxy comes by it and sort of comes just around the edge that you can then turn what was an ordinary galaxy in there into a spiral galaxy. You can actually create the spiral structure. Do we know for sure if this is how it works? We know that it does work, but does this, is there something else going on with galaxies? There's still a lot that we don't understand. How particular is it? How, how exacting do you have to have those two galaxies colliding in exactly this way? If you have to have them always hit exactly the same, could you form all the spiral galaxies that we see by this method? Now, just as you can form a solar system by two stars colliding together, it would be extremely rare, and we wouldn't expect to find lots of galaxies, lots of, star, lots of solar systems out there. If this is the case and you have to have things in a very particular manner, specific masses, specific um, orientations as to how it hits, you know, it's quite possible that that would not be able to explain all of the spiral galaxies at least that we see today. But maybe it explains some, maybe there's another method as well. Or maybe this is how we can explain all of them. But it's still still a topic of research. It's not something that we completely understand. But we do see that it can happen. We can simulate it on the computer and find out that we can turn a galaxy that was not spiral, had no spiral structure at all, into a spiral galaxy. And then once we form the spiral galaxy, Then the density waves stick in. You have denser areas where more stars will form. They tend to gather more material, and it builds on itself. So once you can form the spiral structure, it will last. But the question is, how many collisions like this will you get? All right, so that was what we're finishing up uh, 16.3. 16.4 is talking about the black holes in galaxies. So this is a couple uh, images here. This is invisible light on the left-hand side and X-rays on the right-hand side looking at the very center of a galaxy. And again, galaxies merging together. We're actually finding, in this case, not just a single black hole, but two of them. And there are two supermassive black holes. So you know, thinking about just black holes, we talked about Cygnus X1, something that was you know, 5, 10 times the mass of the sun. Here we have things that are millions of times the mass of the Sun, two of them orbiting around each other. And they're expected that they will slowly merge together. Their orbits are decaying, that means they're getting closer and closer together over time. And eventually they will merge together and form an even more massive black hole. Now unlike other objects, if you get two black holes merging together, nothing much happens. You get a much bigger black hole. There's no massive explosion, no emission of X-rays or gamma rays or anything like that unless there's material around them. But if you just take those two black holes, combine them together, you just got a bigger black hole. Anything that happens is trapped inside the event horizon. But we do see, again, another case here. We know that there's black holes in these galaxies. We see them in almost every galaxy we look at, every large galaxy. And we're also still seeing evidence of collisions, very very close uh, very two large black holes wouldn't normally form, you'd think you'd form just a single one at the center as you normally form a single star at the center of a galaxy or at the center of a solar system. Here at the center of a galaxy you'd normally find just a single black hole so likely through collisions we form this and then eventually they merge together to form one even larger black hole. Here's another galaxy we're looking at Again, some of the evidence for black holes here. We're looking at this. There's the central portions of this galaxy. We're looking at that hydrogen radiation, that 21 centimeter, the long wavelength radiation that we study. Makes it very easy to study hydrogen across the universe. When we look at that radiation very close to the core, so this is looking way down in this core here, very tiny central section here, we see that one side is shifted towards the blue part of the spectrum. Blue shifted moving towards us, one part is red shifted moving away from us, and that allows us to determine the speeds, how fast that gas is moving around the center of the galaxy. The only thing when you're talking about distances like that, 0.2 parsecs. 0.2 parsecs is less than half of a light year. We're not even, you know, we're like an eighth of the way to Alpha Centauri, to the nearest star. We're really close. We're outside our solar system, but you're putting all this material, something very, very massive there, because if it weren't, the gas would have no reason to move that fast. It would not be orbiting around anything that fast. There has to be a lot of material there, millions of times the mass of the sun. So what I'm trying in these last couple to show you is to try to uh, convince you that there are, have to be black holes. Our measurements at the centers of these galaxies show us that there are lots and lots of black holes at the center of these. Each of these galaxies has a massive black hole at the center because it's the only thing that can explain a lot of the emissions that we're seeing, a lot of the fast motions of gas that we're seeing. When we looked at our galaxy, we looked at stars. We could see the stars moving close to the center of our galaxy at very, very high speeds. That gave us a way to measure the mass of our black hole. Here we can do the same thing. If we look at how fast those are moving around, the center of their galaxy, if we know how far away they are from the center of their galaxy, we can then get an estimate of about how massive those black holes are and we find that they range quite a bit. That the black holes might range from relatively small things. There's our Milky Way down here is a relatively small black hole, only about uh, four million times the mass of our Sun. This would be ten million, a hundred million, one billion, so we're up into the several billion range for some of these galaxies up here. So we can get a very big range of these black holes. Some are very small down here, even less massive than that of our Milky Way. Some of the big ones are actually a lot more. You know, Not just 10 times the size of our Milky Way, which would be about here, not just 100, but pushing 1,000 times the mass of our Milky Way. Incredibly big. Now what the graph is trying to show is that there's a relationship between how big the core of the galaxy is and how big the black hole is. So those with bigger cores, makes sense, would have a bigger black hole at the center. So these very large galaxies, massive cores, are the ones that have extremely large black holes. Those smaller, such as the Milky Way down here and some of the other, these small ellipticals, have very small black holes at the center. We also see there's two different types of dots there. Solid dots are elliptical galaxies. Open circles are spiral galaxies. Most of the very largest black holes are in elliptical galaxies. So if you look up here in this very top section up in here, there's only one of those that's a spiral galaxy. Most of them are in elliptical galaxies. Elliptical galaxies are some of the biggest Can be some of the biggest. They can also be some of the tiniest. But they can be some of the biggest galaxies. So they're going to have some of the very most massive black holes. Again, things that are a a billion times, several billion times the mass of our own sun. So incredibly large black holes at the center here of these galaxies. Quasars. Again, we talked about quasars in the last chapter. We know that they're very far away. What we think they are, we called them active galaxies last time, they're actually, all we're seeing in a quasar is the core of a distant galaxy. The core is so bright that it overwhelms the rest of the galaxy. So early on when they were first detected, that was all we could see. When we first measured the first of these quasars, all we could see was the central core. Now, as our equipment gets better and better, we can start to see that not only is there this extremely bright core there, but there's also a little bit of material around it. Here, even more, you can see lots and lots of material around that, not near as bright as the rest of the galaxy, as the center of the galaxy where the quasar is. But we do see that it looks like these quasars are actually a very early stage in the formation of galaxies. We don't see any quasars today. They're all gone. They existed, when we look at the quasars we see today, are all ones that existed ten billion years ago or more. So there are no quasars near to us in our local group, in the Virgo cluster, in the nearby clusters of galaxies, there's none of these quasars. They existed very early on when the galaxies were really just beginning to form. So if you think about that, you had lots of gas and dust, lots of galaxies colliding together in the early universe, that would have put a lot of material into that black hole, a lot of material into the central black hole that was forming and around it, and that would have given us lots of energy. And that's where we're seeing all these quasars coming from, is from that very early stage. We don't see any now. You know, Our galaxy does not have a quasar at its center and probably never did. Something like the Andromeda galaxy does not have a quasar at the center. The rest of the galaxy dominates. Most of the light comes from the galaxy itself. When we look at some of these quasars, most of the light comes from the central, just from that very central region. That's why they almost look like a point of light in the sky. But when we look at them in more detail we start to see that there is a little bit of fuzziness around them. We start to see that there is some part of a galaxy there as well. Quasars are gone. They're all dead now. The only ones we see are the ones that are far enough away that the light is still traveling to us. It's traveled 10 billion years. So when astronomers study a quasar, they're looking at an object. The light, see- as it was, five billion years before our solar system even formed. That light has taken ten billion years to leave, to leave that quasar, travel through all of the intervening space, and then reach us today. All of the quasars are older than that. We don't see any that are millions of light years away. Millions of light years away. Hundreds of millions. Of light years, that's only when you get out to 10 billion or more. All of the quasars are that old. So we really think it's a very, very early stage when the galaxies were just first beginning to form. Now, the quasars go away. But the quasar is powered by the black hole. Black hole doesn't go anyplace, right? The black hole doesn't just disappear. We mentioned that they can evaporate over time. That takes For some black holes this side, you're talking many trillions of years. We're not even close to any of those uh, disappearing. So the black hole is still there. So that's why we find at the center of many of these galaxies have a supermassive black hole. Why are they not still quasars if they've got the massive black hole there? The black hole needs to be fed. If it's not got any material going into it, or not much material going into it, it's not going to be emitting a lot of energy. The more material you shove into that, again, early on, you probably had collisions and galaxies, you had lots of these little tiny galaxies smashing together all the time. You were putting a lot of material into the accretion disk around that black hole. Now, that's eh, it's getting some little bit of material. We can still detect some energy from the center of our galaxy, from the centers of other galaxies, but not near as much as what we see from a quasar. So, we know that most, we believe that most, if not uh, every black hole has a has a massive every galaxy has a massive black hole at its center so the black hole is still there if for some reason you could put so much material into it again it would become active that's what we see as the active galaxies but we don't see anything get, that gets active to the stage that the quasars do we don't see anything currently that gets to that activity you 'd have to be sending way too much material in that we just don't think really happens any anymore at all. But the black hole's still there. It doesn't go away and it's going to remain there forever. The more you feed it, the more active the galaxy is going to get. The less you feed it, the less active the galaxy will remain. So it's still there, but the only ones we see that active are the ones that were about ten from ten billion years ago or more. So here's what we think might have happened. This is a diagram from the text showing how we think galaxies might have formed together. How we formed elliptical galaxies, how we formed normal spiral galaxies. A long time ago, billions of years ago, shortly after the Big Bang, these were the very first galaxies that formed, small irregular galaxies. They would slowly merge together, start to form a black hole which would be collecting all that material around it into an accretion disk, giving off lots of energy as you combine a couple of those together, you can really feed that black hole and you can form a quasar. So that's when we see, this is very early on, we're getting to these quasars, this era is really the first couple billion years after the Big Bang. And you've got a black hole here getting larger and larger as you've combined. You know, I've only shown two combining here, it's not just two, it was probably 20, 50, 100 of these things combining together to finally make up a quasar. It was lots and lots of them, not just a couple. Once you form the quasars, you can do two different things. And this is how we think we get a couple of the different types of active galaxies that we see. Quasars were one of them. Another one might be that quasar might combine with more small galaxies. Okay, so a small galaxy would merge with it, hitting it just right, forming it into a spiral galaxy. Early on, it's going to be much more energetic. If you recall, that was the Seifert galaxies. Those were the ones that looked like spirals, but were emitting a little too much energy. So you could take a quasar, combine it with another galaxy. It's using up all its fuel at the center around that black hole, so it's quieting down, turns it into a spiral galaxy. Over time, you use up the rest of that material around it, and pretty much you end up with a normal spiral galaxy. So that's one way you can go. Take the little tiny galaxies, form a quasar, more little tiny galaxies, crash with that quasar and make it into a spiral galaxy. Now the other thing that you might be able to do is take a quasar, take two of those quasars and combine them together. That would be two really massive objects together. That's when we think we get a radio galaxy. You combine those two together, you essentially use up all the gas and dust at once with those two big objects colliding and create lots and lots of stars all at once, lots of energy going out. That's when you get the radio jets streaming out and you've smashed all of that together and then formed an elliptical galaxy. So, two different ways just really depending on how they merge together. The black holes are still there. as kind of highlighted in this image. There's the black hole at the center of the elliptical galaxy. There's the black hole at the center of the spiral galaxy. They're still present. They haven't gone anyplace they're still there. They're just not active anymore. So very early active galaxies were the quasars. A little bit later we had the radio galaxies and the Seiferts and they have just sort of as they quieted down just become more normal ellipticals and normal spirals. The ones that we still see as active galaxies closer to to today are the result of other mergers, later mergers, something else giving giving some energy to that black hole, giving some material into that black hole. Now, the last section, I believe, of this chapter is on the biggest scales of the universe. So we're going to look at here are some images. You'll see we'll come back to some of these right at the beginning of chapter 17 as well uh, next Wednesday. Galaxies formed into clusters. There's our little teeny tiny local group. Boy, we're starting to look small, right? We had, our ga- we had our solar system. We had stars around, local stars around us now. This is not just our galaxy. This is our whole group of galaxies. And we're this little tiny dot in this local part of the universe. Whereas this isn't the entire universe. This is just the local part of it. But those clusters of galaxies, Virgo, Hydra, actually combine into Centaurus here, combine into larger clusters. So the galaxies seem to form not just clusters, but what we call superclusters. Which are clusters of clusters. Meaning that when we look out there in the universe we see galaxies, lots of galaxies in this area. It's a three-dimensional image here. There's all the galaxies are here. What's in the empty regions? Not a whole lot. So, galaxies tend to form in these great groupings of superclusters and form those, and they also leave great voids, great empty spaces in between them, where there is really not a lot of material. So, all the galaxies form together in those groupings, nothing in between. Here's us. We're on the very edge of the Virgo supercluster. So, that's one gigantic cluster. And if you remember the numbers, our local group had 40 some galaxies. The Virgo cluster had 3,000, 3,500. Now you've got, you're up up to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of galaxies in these superclusters. And again, we're only looking at a very small part of the universe. This isn't the whole universe. This is only, only 100 million parsecs, about 300 million light years out of 13, 14 billion. So we're looking at a very tiny slice of the universe here. Here's another image. Where those galaxies are, again, we start to see that there's places where there's lots of galaxies. Around here, there's Virgo itself. There's some of the others up further north, some of the ones further south. They do form, they tend to form into groups where there's lots of galaxies. And other regions here, hardly anything. Up here, hardly anything. you have got sections of millions of light years, tens of millions of light years where there's nothing. It's pretty much just empty space and there's not a lot of material. There's one there with hardly anything. Here, you got a little bit, but that's still pretty empty. This region right here, hardly any galaxies present in it. So very, very empty by comparison when you count the number of galaxies when you're looking at the Virgo cluster. So a lot of space is actually quite empty. We've gone over that from the beginning, right? Our solar system is empty. Our local neighborhood of stars is empty. The neighborhood of galaxies is empty. Well, even the universe is quite empty in many spaces. When we look at a little bit larger section here, uh, we see again more chains, more uh, filaments of material. This is actually called the Great Wall of Galaxies. kind of stretches across from one side to the other, across the diagram. There's the clusters here, some of the clusters were at the center doesn't mean we're anything special. It's just because we're observing from here. Any astronomer in any of these other galaxies would really get the same type of, same general type of image and they'd be at the center. It just depends on who, where you're observing from. But you see again, lots of filaments, lots of walls as they're called here, and lots of voids. Area where there's hardly any galaxies. Even areas close to us. It's not just that they're really far away. Okay, these galaxies that are getting real far away are hard to see. They get faint. Maybe that's why we don't see so many. But even close to us here, we see big chunks with no galaxies and some with lots of galaxies kind of chained together. So we do start to see some kind of structure to the universe on these kind of scales. We're talking about hundreds of millions of light years. We're not out to the edges of the universe yet. We're going to get to, get there shortly. Here's an even bigger one. This is the same type of diagram. You look at how many galaxies were counted, looking towards the north over 11,000, looking towards the south over 12,000 galaxies. So each of those dots in there is, a ga- is representing a galaxy. You're starting to lose that structure. Is there really any pattern to this? You still start to see some of the voids, some of the lighter areas, you see some concentrations, but you don't see any large structures. Our last one, the last one we were looking at was this section right here with that blue line. That's what we were looking at in the previous image. Now we've gone up this much further. Gone up that much further in distance. Getting out towards the edge of the universe now. But there's really no sign of structure on really large scales. There's no big, you know, gigantic uh, void that covers a big chunk of this. There's no uh, large wall that really covers the whole section of it. It's pretty much just a uniform. When you get out to the very largest scales, the universe is very, very uniform, has almost a frothy, exp- frothy, you know, bubbly appearance. That there are these little bubbles on small scales, but there's no gigantic bubbles. There's no gigantic walls, there's no gigantic voids. We see them if we look on these kind of scales, but when we look much larger, we don't see any detail. Now, I mentioned this the last time. You see lots and lots of galaxies here, and you don't see so many here. That has only to do with the fact that we can't see those galaxies because they're so far away. There's lots more galaxies out there if we could go and count them all. The problem is many of them are just so faint that we cannot see them at all. So it's really that it's more difficult to observe them than anything else. We just cannot see all of those galaxies. They're there, but we can only see the ones that are bright enough. But we still see the same kind of patterns just on, much, on the smaller scales. As we start to get bigger, it's starting to become more and more uniform. Just a very general structure for the universe. Now, learning about that material, it's difficult to study the material that's in between. In between, in those voids, it's very hard to study them. They don't emit a lot of energy. They're not bright. They're not forming stars. They're not forming galaxies. But there is some material in those voids. So how can we learn about them? Well, one way we can do do that is through the quasars. Quasars are all very, very far away, so the light from them has traveled through all these different regions, has traveled through voids, has traveled through clusters of galaxies to get to us. It's traveled through a large chunk of the universe to get to us. So if we study the spectrum of a quasar, we can learn about all of that different, all those different regions around it. All the different regions, not just out by the quasar, but all the different regions that it passed through over time. As that light took 10, 12 billion years to reach us, you know, it didn't just disappear there and 12 billion years later arrive here. It slowly traveled through all of that empty space that we were looking at. I'm going to go back for a second. But all that empty space that we were looking at here. So quasars way out here had to travel through. The light has to travel through. All those voids, all those filaments, to get down to us 10, 12 billion years later. So we can learn about that, the material that it went through. Now, if we recall way, way back, back probably September-wise, we talked about the spectra, we did labs looking at the spectra. Uh, Gas will absorb light, depending on what it's made up of. Most of the gas out there is hydrogen. So hydrogen will absorb, right, red light specifically that one wavelength of red light that it loves, it will absorb that light. Quasars give off lots and lots of light. There's a lot of hydrogen coming between them. So when we look at the spectrum of a quasar, it tells us about all those little hydrogen clouds on the way. It can tell us about all those little bits and pieces of hydrogen that it passed in in its journey. So we can really learn about the whole thing by looking at this. Here's where This is one of the hydrogen lines. This is where actually one of the ultraviolet lines of hydrogen should be. This is where we might see it in a quasar because it's shifted out into the visible part of the spectrum. But we also see all these little absorption lines on the way. Each of those is due to a cloud of hydrogen that this light passed through. The ones that are shifted very far away tells us about hydrogen that was very close to the quasar. As it gets closer and closer to us the shift is less. Remember all these clouds are at different distances. So as they get closer they're not red shifted quite as much. They tend to be closer to us until we get down to right here where we start to see what the absorption is like very nearby to us which we know a little more. So we can actually learn each of these little lines here is telling us something about gas clouds on the way that this light traveled through on on its way to us. And that's what we call an absorption line for us just because there's all these all these tens and hundreds and thousands of absorption lines that are really telling us not just about the quasar, they really don't tell us about the quasar, they tell us about the space in between the quasar here and us here. All those, each line was one different gas cloud that the quasar's light had to pass through. Each of those is a different distance from us, It's therefore going to have a different redshift, a different velocity. And they're all spread out. So instead of them all being close together where they'd normally be, if it was just one gas cloud it passed through, they're all spread out over, over space. And we can learn, really, about the light about the light. We can learn about the whole path that that light had to take. We can learn what the material is like there. Now here's an example of a double quasar. Two quasars actually very close together. But, turns out they weren't, it wasn't a double quasar because it was actually just one because they were exactly the same. They were identical. You took their spectrum, their spectra were the same. You watched their variations in brightness, they were exactly the same. It turns out that it's actually not two quasars, so one quasar with a jet, one quasar with a jet here. So not two quasars, but actually one, two images of the identical quasar. So how are we going to get that? Well, if we remember, we talked about Einstein's relativity. Einstein said that you could bend light. And that you could get, uh, we talked about bending light. As a star passed close to the sun, it would bend its light and its position would appear to change. If you have strong enough gravity, you can actually bend the light from the quasar and make multiple images of it. So this is what we call gravitational lensing. It's really using gravity to bend the light and actually brings the light together and forms multiple images. We can tell that's what's going on because they're identical. No two things are going to be identical out there in space. You're going to get get quasars, you're going to get two quasars, they're going to have some differences to them. Their spectra will be slightly different, their variations, one will get brighter, one will get fainter. These two were doing exactly the same thing. So instead of just being two really close together quasars, they were a single image of, or two images of a single quasar. And that happens through gravitational lensing. And here's an example of what happens, how this happens. So you might have some object in the foreground. Might actually not even be visible to you. Even if it's a galaxy, it might be in between these, but it might be a galaxy that's too faint to be seen. whereas. The quasar is much, much brighter or visible. And what happens is the light travels, some of this light travels out in all directions, so some of it's going this way, planning to head off this direction. It passes near this gravitational field and gets bent to us here at Earth. Another set of this travels this way, comes towards us here. When we look backwards, we can't, we don't see the quasar there necessarily. We see the images coming back from here. There's one of the images. We see the image coming from here, another one. Sometimes you can get two images. Sometimes you can get three, four, you know, ten. You can get multiple images depending on how good the gravity source is lined up with the quasar. So that really gives us a chance to study these in great detail and to learn about a couple of different things. It lets us learn about the galaxy that's in front. We can learn its mass by how much the light is bent. So it depends exactly how much the light is bent. We can learn about the quasar, interestingly, because most likely these two paths aren't going to be exactly the same length. right? If this is you know, 14 billion light years, you know, one could be you know, a light year or a fraction of a light year off. So we can learn something about the quasar, because we're seeing the quasar at two different times, maybe as it is now and maybe as it was six months before maybe a couple of months before. So those variations might not be exact, but you'd see the same pattern of variations, but this one might get brighter, and a few months later this one might get brighter. But the overall pattern you'd see would be exactly the same. So we can learn about the quasar, we can learn about the galaxy as well. We can learn the mass of the galaxy, or the cluster of galaxies, or the black hole, or whatever it is that it's doing, whatever the massive gravity source that is causing the bending of the light. So we can learn about all that material by studying this gravitational lensing. We see this in lots of cases. It's not just the one case I've shown you. We see lots and lots of cases where gravity bends the light from these distant quasars. Distant quasars, distant galaxies. We see some examples. I think I have one here. Here's one with four images. On the left hand side that's actually a visible light image. So. There's the object. Maybe that is the actual quasar itself, kind of almost hiding behind it. And you get four different images here. If you get everything lined up perfectly, you'll actually form a ring. You could actually get everything lined up absolutely perfectly, that the quasar is lined up directly with the center of gravity of this galaxy and lined up with the Earth. Put all three of those on a perfectly straight line. And then you would actually get a ring around it called an Einstein ring. So the galaxy would appear as a ring around the other one. Very rare, very, very rare for that to happen. We see multiple cases. We don't really see any rings except theoretically, except when we do simulations of it. Here's a couple more examples of gravitational lensing. It's not just necessarily the galaxy. a single galaxy that does it, a whole cluster, can be used as the gravitational lens. Here you see a whole bunch of galaxies here. The odd ones you see are these things that are kind of streaks and things. Those are actually bits of the other galaxies that have been lensed. So they've actually been distorted. It's like a funhouse mirror mirror. They've actually been distorted in their shapes. You actually distort some of their shapes around. So instead of just looking like little galaxies, they're actually stretched out or squashed down. Their shaping actually changes by the gravitational lensing, by passing through the gravitational field, not just of one of these galaxies, but of all of them at once. On this one, we're seeing probably what they believe here, that these measurements of these, these are probably all these blue things are the same galaxy, images of the same galaxy, that's probably behind this cluster here, and we're seeing all those little tiny pieces not pieces of the galaxy, images of that same galaxy just distorted as they pass through the gravitational field of this. Again, that tells us something about this galaxy because we can look at all these different images at all different times of it at once. And we learn something about the mass of this galaxy cluster. It gives us a way to measure that mass and determine how massive it is, how much material is there in that galaxy cluster. And I think, do I have one more? Yeah. I've talked about dark matter. There's two images here. These are both images of the same part of the sky. So on the left hand side is actually the galaxy. These are a cluster of galaxies. Just about every object you see in here is a galaxy. Just about everything you see here is a galaxy. It's a lot of galaxies out there. A lot of galaxies. I mean, there's a lot and lot. There's a few stars. You can usually tell the stars because they have the little diffraction patterns going through them. So those ones are, star, are most likely stars, but all of these faint objects are not stars in our galaxy for the most part, but are actually distant galaxies. So there are a lot and a lot of galaxies out there. On this, this is not looking at the galaxies, this is looking at where the dark matter is. We know how, Remember, we know how those galaxies are moving, how they move around in space. In order for them to stay in that cluster, there has to be a certain amount of matter there. We can see some of it. We see some matter right there, and right? I can count up galaxies, I can estimate how massive they are. But this is where the mass has to be distributed to explain the distribution we see in the galaxies. So there's lots and lots of material here, but greatly spread out well beyond the clusters that we, well beyond just the central part of that cluster. Lots of material here, lots of material here, here. Very little dark matter in some of the places needed. So we can use this, we can use this gravitational lensing to really be able to study the dark matter. To learn where this dark matter is, how it's distributed in space. And we'll need that in the coming chapter really to be able to look at what everything is like in the universe. How did galaxies form and clusters form in the first place? So we explained how a galaxy formed with our own galaxy. I really didn't go through how a cluster of galaxies yet could have formed. And that's what we'll look at in Chapter 17. Chapter 17 is cosmology, and that's you know, the origin and the history of the universe. So we'll start talking about the Big Bang uh, next Wednesday, and then go on from there with you know how did the universe form from that, and how did we get to all of the stuff that we know today how did we get to spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies and stars and nebulae and planets and all of that how did we get through to that through to that so i think is that all i had up here yeah i didn't put the i didn't put the review sheets out, the review summaries up there those are uh, worth looking at still but i'm going to go ahead and just stop there i did pretty good we got through that section today maybe you need to take a break and stretch for a few minutes and then i will get your lab uh, out and ready here for you in a few in a few minutes Questions? Yes. Does dark matter follow the same laws as normal matter? That it cannot be created and not be destroyed? Yes. It would be the same. Other than, you know, nuclear reactions, whatever the dark matter is. It's not you can't just make more dark matter or get rid of dark matter. So it it follows the same laws of gravity. We see it gravitationally. What else does it do? I mean it, it doesn't give off any energy. So there's some laws that it, you know. It has some different properties that it doesn't give off like visible light, or x-rays, or gamma rays, or radio waves, or anything else. So it doesn't interact with energy quite the same. And we'll see that in the next, cha- in the next chapter. Ever thought of that it might be what comes from a black hole when it fades? Um, when it fades, it just it forms regular particles, though. Because we know what the material that it, you know, the Hawking radiation. One particle comes in, one goes out, that forms the so we'd know what kind of particles that would be any normal particle. But, yeah? Um, what would happen to all the mass that the black hole is uh, sucked in over its lifetime when it finally dissipates? It's, over time, It's, it's extending that mass out as either mass or energy in that Hawking radiation. So it's giving off those, part- those little bits of particles. That's where all of its mass is going. That's why it takes an incredibly long time for a big massive black hole. It's not going to really do that very quickly. You're losing a few particles here and particles there. It's not going to affect a billion solar mass black hole. It's going to take it trillions and trillions of years for it to wait, get, all, get rid of all that. Yeah. The little tiny ones, yeah, they create and they go right, o- they disappear right away. But they don't have the gravity that they're going to do anything. So it's not going to affect you. You know, they don't have the strong gravity. It's if, if they're, you know microscopic, atom-sized particles. they got the mass of an atom. They don't have the mass of a Sun, even if they're a black hole. And they evaporate very, very quickly. Excellent.